You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord is coming. Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We are coming to the home stretch now of the book of James. And um, what, what we find is that the book opens and closes with this similar theme. So you've heard me talk in the past about this literary technique that happens in the Bible uh, and really in, in a lot of different literature, but we talk about it in biblical studies. We call it an inclusio. And the way it works is you think of it as a sandwich. There's a statement at the beginning of a section and there's a statement at the end of the section and they're similar enough that they create this stack. So there's the opening statement, there's content, and then there's the closing statement. And in a world where things like chapter divisions and stuff like that didn't exist, this is one of the ways that the authors tell you that this forms a unit. What we find in the book of James is that the entire letter is an inclusio. So he begins, literally the second verse is counted all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith leads to endurance. Endurance brings about perfection. I'm paraphrasing a little at the end. James closes his letter by coming back to that theme. So that's, that's where we are. And the reason I went back and read uh, the first portion of this chapter is because in, in the NIV, which is what we're reading for, it's translated as be patient then brothers, which is not a great translation. Uh, it's probably better to think of this as be patient therefore brothers. The Greek word is a, it's a connecting word that shows you that the, the portion of text that we're talking about is the consequence or the conclusion of the previous one. So the force of this statement is something along the lines of, since the wicked will perish in judgment, be patient for the Lord's return. This isn't a a perfect example, but if you think back to some of the high profile um, cases of violence that have been in the news in the the recent years, um, the one that comes to mind for me is the Boston Marathon bombing. Um, Ashley and I lived in Boston. I can remember very distinctly what happened that day. 
And there's often this time period between when the verdict is read, when the person is pronounced guilty, and then there's a period of time usually between that and when their sentence is handed down. And then there's always an additional period of time between when their sentence is handed down and when the sentence is executed or engaged. Now, this is a reality in our, our justice system, but it's also a reality in God's divine justice system. So what we saw the last time we were in James is that God has already pronounced judgment on the people who were oppressing these um, poor Jewish Christians who had been scattered out into the countryside. He's already pronounced judgment on that. He's already found them to be guilty. What we see here is that James is now encouraging these poor Jewish Christians to be patient for the day of the final execution of God's justice. So just like sometimes you'll see in the news a family member who is in this in-between time where someone has been found guilty of the murder or assault of their loved one, and they're saying, I just want justice to be done. I just want the person to pay for what they've done. That's the force of what, what we're seeing and feeling here. So this week, this is a relatively short passage, but it packs a lot in about what it is that Christians believe is going to happen when the Lord returns. And James encourages us to be patient. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the Lord's coming. This phrase, the Lord's coming, that word coming is a technical term. I don't usually share Greek terms with you, but the Greek term is parousia. And when it, it became this technical term of the understanding of this moment in time when the Lord Jesus Christ would return to the earth and set all things right. So we have to be careful when we're reading the New Testament because we see the word Lord and sometimes, sometimes that basically means Mr. Sometimes it's something more like Master or we're, we're someone who's in some sort of social subversion or social subservience to someone else might call them Lord or master. Sometimes the word Lord is actually the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, or some of the older translations would say Jehovah. We see that frequently in the New Testament. And when we see combined with this term parousia or Lord's coming, this tells us that the text is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who is Yahweh. So that all of that is conceptualized in that tiny little package. So sometimes there is um, some chatter in the commentaries and in different theological schools that James doesn't really seem to talk about Jesus all that much. He mentions them in the, in the beginning of the text, but he, Jesus isn't really present through the rest of it. We see here at the conclusion of the letter, and we also see through the, the fact that James patterns almost all of his teaching after his older brother's teaching, that Jesus Christ is front and center through James's thinking through the whole thing. Every time that he promises these Jewish Christians, these poor Jewish Christians, that their faith will be rewarded, that their perseverance will lead to perfection, that the wicked who are, who are murdering them and oppressing them will get what's coming to them. Every time he says that God will accomplish that, He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So James here gives us an example of a farmer 
Now I'm, I'm not a farmer. I I've never grown anything in my life. Uh, I just, that's just not my jam, but I know enough about farming and about plants and horticulture that there is an element of faith that you have to have. You put the seed in the ground or in the potter or the planter or whatever it is, you put that in there. And although there are certain things that you can and must do to foster that seed's growth, to make it possible for that seed to grow, you have to water it. You might have to add nutrients. And there are things you can do to encourage that growth to be more than it might've been otherwise. You can add fertilizer, you can use special soils. At the end of the day, either that seed is going to sprout or it's not. And sometimes, I think oftentimes, you can do all of the right things. You can use all the right soils. You can buy all the right things. You can make sure it sits in the perfect spot in your yard where it gets just the right, of sunlight, right amount of sunlight. You can chase away the rabbits and sometimes the seed just doesn't take. And now that's a reality for farmers just as much as it is for the hobby gardener or the person who's trying to grow tomatoes in their, um, on their porch or wants to plant a rose bush. Now, when we think of farming, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Minnesota. So I, I had friends in college who were from Nebraska and Oklahoma and, and Iowa. So right after college, I spent a lot of time visiting friends in kind of that lower portion of the Midwest, the, the corn belt or the wheat fields. And when you drive through these wheat fields, you don't see them too often here because of the type of farming we do and because of the type of rain we get, but you'll see these big sprinkler systems, right? Miles of piping and these, these long tubes that spray water out to make sure there's a regular steady supply of water for the crops to grow. None of that existed in the first century. Now there was rudimentary um, aqueducts and other kinds of irrigation techniques. So it's not as though it was entirely up to the rain, but the primary source of, of water for a farmer's field was rain. And in this part of the country, there was generally two, or part of the world, there was generally two rainy seasons. There was what's usually called the early rainy season and then what is appropriately called the later rainy season. So farmers would plant their crops in the, um, the late autumn or the early autumn usually, and then there would be a rainy season in the autumn. Then there'd be a dry period, and then there would be a later spring rains. So when we see here that the farmer is patient for the autumn and spring rains, or a more, a more literal translation is for the early and the later rains, there's again this element of trust, right? The farmer plants his crops before there's any rain. If those early rains don't come in, if they have a dry spell, that could be famine for the whole region. We see famines throughout the, the Bible. It's one of the major ways that God judges a nation is by causing droughts and famines. So there's this first step of faith of putting the rain in, of the seed into the ground and cultivating the soil and doing all the things that the farmer needs to do. And then there's this long period of waiting, waiting for the rains praying every day that the rains would come in. There's a reason that the, the primary pagan god of, of ancient pagan mythology is a fertility god who's associated with the rain. We see Baal in the Old Testament. We see Baal all over the place. Baal was a fertility god who is also the god of the storms. So even among those who are, are outside of God's um, kingdom, those who are just looking at nature and seeing what is the most important, most powerful thing to make sure we can continue to live. 
it was the rain. In this part of the world, if you didn't have rain, you didn't have life. So the farmer plants the seed, cultivates the soil, and then he waits and celebrates when this first rain comes in. Then he waits again for months. We're not talking about planting a tomato crop at the beginning of the summer or in the late spring. Shows you how much I know about crops. Planting a tomato crop sometime in your garden and waiting a few months for it to sprout a couple feet. We're talking about months, multiple months. And if at any stage the Lord doesn't provide the early or the later rains, your family might die. So to talk about the patience of a farmer, we're not just talking about someone who is has a ability to wait a long time for a sure thing. If I knew that something that I was looking for was coming, if I order something online and the, the shipment gets delayed, I might be frustrated. I might be a little bit put off by the fact that the thing I ordered didn't come when I said it would. But I can wait a lot longer for that product I've purchased to come when I have the tracking number that shows me it's still on its way. Occasionally when I order something on Amazon, I'm sure you've all experienced this, they don't update the tracking number. You don't actually know if it's been shipped. You don't know if it's ever coming. It is a lot harder to wait for that. And so on one level, we're directed to wait patiently like the farmer who has to trust in the Lord, who has to wait for the rains to come in before the crop can be watered and be harvested eventually. How we differ from the farmer in this analogy is that the farmer knows there's a chance that the rain's never coming. But we know that the Lord's return is sure. So much more so than the farmer who has to wait and knows there's a chance that the work of his labor may never be rewarded. We know that the Lord will return and set things to right. And part of the way that we do this, and part of the difficulty of this waiting, is that it's easy to be frustrated with each other. In the context of this letter, what we think probably was going on is that um, the these poor Jewish Christians were being accused of things. And oftentimes, as it goes, when a group is facing frustrations and pressure from the outside, the outcome is that they turn on each other. There was also an element that likely if a poor farmer who is working the land and is being defrauded says or does the wrong thing or angers the wrong powerful person, that may bring down more persecution on the other Christians around them. So there was likely this element of keep your mouth shut. And if someone steps out of line, it would have been very easy for the Christians to push that off on them, to grumble against them. It would be like if you were on a shared project at work and you're working with a, a colleague uh, on a project and the project falls behind schedule and the manager or the director comes in and says, tell me what's going on. We have the option to say, our team has failed to meet the deadline, but we're going we're gonna to redouble our efforts. Or we have the option to say, well, Frank really screwed this one up right? Joanne really messed this one up. It's her fault or it's his fault that the project fell behind. It's not me. Don't, don't look at me. I'm always on time. I'm always at the meetings. There was a phenomena in this early church that it was often expedient and there was a self-preservation element 
to turn on your brothers and sisters. And the way that James is commanding the people to handle that is to wait patiently on the Lord and trust that he will do what's right and that he will accomplish his purposes. And the way we demonstrate our faith in that is by not succumbing to the pressure to throw our Christian brothers and sisters under the bus. So in our modern era, in a world of pronoun confusion and gender ideology, we may face a time where we are forced to stand with a brother or sister who refuses to submit to that. Or we could throw them under the bus. That's just one example. I'm sure we could come up with others. This text too, it, it gives us a glimpse into the mindset of the early church in reference to Christ's return. So obviously this is, this is the holy word of God. It's inspired, it's infallible, it's perfect, it's free from errors, all of the perfections of scripture that we affirm, but it's also a real letter written by a real man to real people. And it's within a collection of other letters written by other men to other people. So I want to take a look at a couple other, um, eschatology is the technical word, a couple other eschatological texts in the New Testament here that show us the perspective. So if you'll turn in your Bible to 2 Peter, it's just a few pages to the right, and we're going to read verses 3 through 10 here. Now, Peter uh, and James were close associates in Jerusalem. Right? When, when Paul comes to Jerusalem after his conversion and he, meet, he only meets with a handful of the, uh, the leaders of the church, he comes and he meets with Peter and, and this James. Um, it's not necessarily the other James. He comes and meets with James and Peter who were considered pillars of the Jerusalem church. And so 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 3 reads, First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a, with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Peter brings up some of the same themes that we see in James. He's encouraging people to be patient. He's recognizing that there will be those who view this patient expectant position and posture that the Christians take as somewhat ridiculous. The Jewish landowners who were oppressing the the Christians in dispersion here probably were sitting back and laughing at the fact that these people thought someone was coming to rescue them. Peter says the same thing. There will be scoffers 
who basically say, where is your God now? I thought you said that Jesus was coming. I can remember times I was a, I was a uh, sort of a sarcastic little kid when I was younger. I can remember times when I would smart off to a bigger kid and, you know, I would say, well, my friend is going to come protect me. A good friend of mine would often come to my defense and sometimes just by being there, I would avoid a little bit of a beating. And I can remember times where I said that and my friend didn't show up. And sometimes I still avoided the beating. Sometimes I didn't. But the answer and the scoffing often was, well, where's your friend now? I thought you had this big friend who was going to come help you. That's the perspective of these scoffers, of these Jewish landowners who are oppressing the Christians. Peter also reminds his audience and us that although the judgment of the wicked is certain, and therefore the deliverance of the righteous is certain, that it comes on God's timeline. Just like the farmer can't control the rain, which is again the source the source of his life in many real ways, he can't control when that comes. That comes on God's timing. Likewise, we cannot control the timing of God's return. We can't control the timing of God's deliverance in this life. There are lots of times where we face trials that God delivers us from them. Sometimes he just takes away the pain or the trial. But we cannot control or dictate when that happens. So what we are called to do and what we are expected to do is to be ready for the Lord's judgment. And one of the ways that we are to be ready, as Peter alludes to, is to be prepared by preaching the gospel. Part of the reason, according to Peter, is that, uh, that the Lord appears to be slow. He's quick to remind us that the Lord is not actually slow to keep his promises because the Lord is going to operate within his timeline. There's a line from The Hobbit that I think is a pretty famous line where um, it's either Frodo or Bilbo. One of the hobbits says to Gandalf, you're late. And Gandalf says, a wizard is never late. He always arrives precisely when he intends to. The Lord seems to be tarrying. From our perspective, the Lord seems to be taking his time. But from the Lord's perspective, there's no question mark about when he will return and when all of this will be first burned over and then restored. But at least part of the reason that Peter teaches us that the Lord appears to be slow in his coming is because he is patient with the people whom he has called. He desires that none of his elect would perish. Now, I don't have time to get into why it is that I say none of his elect. This is a verse that those who are opposed to a um, predestinarian Calvinist understanding of election, this is a verse that sometimes they will go to to try to trip us up. I don't have time to explain all of that. But the text here says that the reason he is waiting is because he's patient toward us. He's patient toward his people, and his desire is that none of his people would perish. But part of that not perishing, part of us fulfilling 
the Lord's desire. That's a strange way to speak, but fulfilling the Lord's desire that none of his people would perish is that we tell people how to not perish. We have to get out there. We have to share the gospel. The idea that we preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, we use words is absolute nonsense. I can count on one hand, on one finger, the number of times in my life that someone said, you really seem different. Tell me about what that is. It happens. There are people who have come to faith merely by observing the behavior of Christians and then being enticed to ask that question. But the gospel is a proclamation of words. It is the good news of Jesus Christ for sinners who have been chosen by God to be saved. So one of the ways that we are prepared for the Lord's judgment or we are preparing for the Lord to come is by getting out there and telling the world about it. I'm not here to stand in judgment. I don't know your own patterns of personal evangelism, but I think it's safe to say that we could all be more effective. We could all be more assertive. Our lives are a part of that. The way we live our lives and the way we conduct ourselves is a part of that. We can adorn the gospel with our good works and our good behavior. We can make the gospel more presentable because the messenger is not under suspicion. But at the end of the day, if we don't tell them, how will they know? James goes on to give us a familiar example. He uses the prophets as an example of those who suffered righteously and patiently. This should help us to remember that oftentimes when we do get out there and prepare for the Lord's return, that we're going to face some social consequences. As I mentioned last time, we're likely to begin to face some political consequences of standing firm for the truth. We have to be prepared for when that happens. There's this interesting feature in, in the Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews. I won't read the whole thing. But he, he closes that section, the author of Hebrews does, by talking about what happened with these people. He says, women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some of the prophets enjoyed a... Um, relatively secure place of comfort. Some of them worked closely alongside the kings of Israel. And they were court prophets, if you want to think of it that way. Some of the prophets were sawn in half or thrown into muddy cistern pits and left to die. Yet they persevered for the sake of the gospel. The prophets were proclaiming and preaching the gospel. The gospel that God will judge and execute his justice upon the wicked, but that those who turn to the Lord in faith will be made righteous and will be saved. The gospel that the prophet Isaiah or the prophet Nathan or Elijah or Moses 
the gospel that they proclaimed is the very same gospel that we proclaim. And just as they patiently awaited the Lord's deliverance, so also we patiently wait the Lord's deliverance. James moves on to use um, the example of Job. Some of the commentaries you might read, or if you you pick up a, a book on the book of Job, are very divided on whether Job is actually an admirable character. Um, he seems to spend a lot of time during the text trying to justify to his friends why he doesn't deserve what he's getting. He never, he never really turns that fully on God, but he spends a lot of time justifying himself. This is what um, Elihu, who's this sort of random fourth person at the end, the random young man who comes and seems to speak prophetically at the end. This is one of the things he's so upset with Job's three friends about is that Job justifies himself and they never answer that. No one ever says to Job, Job, I know you're saying you haven't sinned, but we all sin. You know this, we all sin. Nobody is perfect. Even in the Old Testament era, nobody thought that they were free of sin. But I actually think that Job is a more admirable prophetic character than we give him credit for. James here points to Job's, the end of Job's story to comfort and encourage his audience that what seems to be taken away from us in this world, whatever that may be, opportunities, our very lives, our families, wealth, whatever it might be, that will be restored to us. And so real, real briefly in the beginning of uh, the book of Job, Job says, uh, the book says that Job had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. And then at the close of the letter, Job is said here, it says, the Lord blessed the later part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, the first daughter he named Jemima, the second Kezia, and the third Karen Hapak. Nowhere in all the lands were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them as an, granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. Now, different people will disagree whether Job, Job's children who were killed in the beginning of the, the book were raised by the Lord and brought back to life, or whether he somehow had seven more sons and three more daughters. I tend to favor the first interpretation, but I'm not sure it's terribly uh, important to the meaning of the text. But Job instructs us in a sort of paradoxical way that although it may be the case that God restores what is lost, that he gives us back what is taken from us, that may be the case Job as a prophet, we don't often think of Job as a prophet, but Job as a prophet in the words that Job says has a very different message for us than if you just trust the Lord, you're going to get all your stuff back. Sometimes we walk away from Job and some of the commentaries walk away from Job with that message. But Job as a book and Job's um, 
Job's own statements, prophetic statements, teach us that the ultimate restoration is in Christ. And that we will only see that restoration realized in the eternal rewards that are promised to us. So almost right in the middle of Job, um, Job has one of the speeches and in chapter 19, he says this, he says, I know that my redeemer lives and that in the end, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Do you see what Job as prophet here is saying? Not only is he confident that his redeemer lives, he's confident that his redeemer will come to the earth. And this redeemer that he will see with his own eyes is God. Sometimes people think that the Old Testament saints had no concept of the Trinity. I don't know how you can read this out of Job and not have some concept of the Trinity. This figure who has flesh will also be God himself, and I will see him with my eyes. That's the Lord Jesus Christ in his incarnate estate when he returns to set all things right. Even back as far as the book of Job, which may and very likely is the earliest book of the Bible that was recorded and written. The oldest testimony that we have in our Bible, the oldest inspired document that we possess, is waiting for the incarnate Lord's return at the end of all things. That when Job was suffering from boils and loss, from his miserable comforters who heaped scorn and sorrow on top of him, from his wife whose advice was to curse God and die. Now we can read that favorably. She was basically saying, put yourself out of your own misery. That's as favorable as it gets for her. Even among all of that, Job wasn't saying, God, just take away the boils. Just take away the pain. I just don't want to suffer anymore. He was saying, no, I know that my Redeemer lives, and yet I will see him on the earth in my own flesh. That, brothers and sisters, is the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, there are many verses and passages in the scripture that talk about how God will restore to us what we've lost. Jesus himself says that anyone who's left house or brothers or sister or fathers or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. That was from our meditation today. Even Jesus teaches that on some level, in some way, there's a restoration and a restitution for God's people. But if all that we're looking forward to is for God to give us back our stuff, to enhance our estate, then we've missed the picture entirely. Because what our hope is, is it's not about the rewards we may have in heaven, which I think the Bible teaches that we will have some sort of concrete temporal rewards. Sometimes in the Bible, that's pictured as like a larger mansion or a crown. There are ways that the Bible talks about those things. It seems to be teaching that God will reward us in some sense beyond just our salvation, 
I don't know exactly how that works. I don't know what that looks like, but that's there. But if that is our focus, then we are looking to God for what he can give us. But the true hope and the true inheritance that we are promised is that we get God. Right? If, if a young man meets a woman and they fall in love and he finds out that this woman is fabulously wealthy and has an inheritance and estates, he may be excited to marry into that. There isn't anything necessarily wrong about being excited about God providentially enhancing your estate. But the second that that man is more excited about the wealth he is going to obtain than the bride he is going to serve and love, that man has totally missed the point. And we likewise, it is appropriate and good to be thankful and to anticipate the beautiful rewards and the, the pleasures that come with what God has promised us. Psalm 16, which is where our, our call to worship came from, says that there at the Lord's right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. But those pleasures all pale in comparison to the fact that we are united to Jesus Christ, that we are his bride, that he is our bridegroom, that we have been adopted by the Father who is now our Father, that the Spirit indwells us. All of these things point us to and should remind us that our reward in heaven is not heaven. Our reward in heaven is God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us the word and that for those who have ears to hear, that you have spoken clearly by your spirit through the scriptures. We know that there is not some spiritual, super special power that is required to understand the scripture, but we also know that it is your spirit that convinces us that is your word. So Lord, today we have learned about you. We've learned about your coming and the coming of your son. And we look forward to the day that we see him with our eyes, that we touch him with our hands, that we are able to embrace him and that he is able to embrace us. We thank you that your spirit lives within us, that we do not have to wait for your presence for some far off future, but that your presence is in us and with us by your spirit. We pray that all of this, that this delight that we feel and this delight that we anticipate, that all of us, all of this would drive us to prepare for the coming of your son by sharing your gospel with any and all who will give us their ear. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.